0: You have your Bibles, and I hope you have those. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter five. That's where we will be this morning. Uh, Pastor Scott has uh, alluded to it a little bit, but it has certainly uh, been a wild ride the last couple weeks. Uh, two weeks ago, we left for camp with our student ministry, and just had an awesome time at Crossings Camp. Had just under fifty students go and spent monday through friday there and it was just a an awesome week god blessed us with beautiful cool weather which is a little bit odd for camp but we loved it um there was uh, at camp it was the week that we went uh, a record-breaking number of students at camp for Cedarmore, uh and that record was held for about five days uh and then another camp came in and broke the record Uh, And then that was held for about five days. And then another camp came in and they broke the record. And I'm pretty sure another camp got there yesterday and they probably broke the record too. So Crossings is doing some pretty amazing things. Even learned how they're being able to carry the the ministry of Crossings Camp, which has carried kind of Kentucky Baptists through a lot, even out into other states, into Tennessee and Mississippi and Maryland, Delaware, a lot of different places that are really benefiting from that. And then we got back and we took a day off. Uh, and then we kickstarted VBS, uh, and VBS was uh, amazing across both campuses, over 150 kids that were there, and uh, no telling how many leaders that were leading all of those kids, and we had the, the 10 decisions, the people who were indicating they're ready to talk about what it looks like to follow Christ, and our, our theme for VBS, and really even a, a little bit of our theme for camp was what it means to have a life that is changed because you are following Christ. Christ. Following Jesus changes everything was the motto of VBS, and isn't that just the truth? And that is the message, and has been the message even for the past few weeks as we have been walking through this series, this verse changes everything. That an encounter with the risen Savior, our King Jesus, changes the whole trajectory of our lives. At least it should. It ought to change our lives in every single way. I think probably most of us would admit, as we look around the world and see people around us, we know that the world is full of people who fit the bill of people who say they know Jesus, but don't look like they know Jesus. They would say it with their words, but their lives might reflect something a little bit differently. And what gets harder in our lives, and what I hope to lovingly confront a little bit this morning is what happens when we look in the mirror and we see that our lives don't quite reflect what it means to know Jesus. That's a little bit harder and a little bit more difficult, but we probably all, if we're being honest, understand what that feeling is. When we know that we ought to be following Jesus, but we also know that our lives don't quite look that way. We can understand what it might have felt like to be one of the people who called themselves a disciple of Jesus and Jesus spoke to in Matthew chapter 7, right? When they showed up and they're like, we're good to go, aren't we, Jesus? And he says, I don't know you. They say, well, hold on a second here. We've been prophesying in your name. Hey, we've been doing crazy things and casting out demons in your name. Jesus, I don't know if you saw it, but in your name, we performed miracles and Jesus says, yeah, I still don't know you. Man, what a hard thing it is for them to have heard, look at all that I've done and somehow I've still missed the mark. So what does it mean to have a life that is changed by Jesus? This morning as we look at a passage, we're talking about verses that change my life. I want to look at a passage that is Always helped me remember that a life that has met Christ is a life that is changed by Christ. The Gospels are full of stories of people who meet Jesus, they encounter him, and they are one way, and then after their encounter, they are a completely different person. And I want to read a passage of scripture from a man who was that, Paul. We know Paul's radical transformation story from murderer and persecutor of the church, encounter with the risen King Jesus, and then he is a completely different person. People may not have even recognized him. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if you'll follow with me starting in verse 16, let's read a few verses here and then walk through this passage. 2 Corinthians 5 Chapter 16, verse, or verses 16 through 21. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that it is faithful to pierce our hearts, God, to teach us and to reveal to us the truth of who you are and who you call us to be. God, as we dig into your word this morning, focus our hearts on what you would have us to learn. God, we love you and we thank you. And it's in your name we pray, amen. So we heard from Pastor Scott a few weeks ago that one of the terrible things that we can do is read a passage of scripture out of context. We should never ever read a single verse or a verse alone, but rather we should understand the fullness of its context so we can understand what's going on. And so to help give us a little bit of context into this passage, I want to tell you a little bit of the story of Paul and the church at Corinth. So Paul, we know had his life radically changed. He met Jesus. He was blinded. He went through the whole thing. He committed his life to Christ. And he said, I am going to give everything to take this message of the gospel that has changed my life and take it out into the world. And he was given this message to share out in the world. And and he went on these multiple missionary journeys and he would take this big looping path. And most of you probably have a Bible that in the back has a map that shows you Paul's different missionary journeys. And you could track those and where he went. And he would follow this path and he would go out and then he would kind of come back and he would check in on all those churches that he had planted as he went. And on one of these missionary journeys, Paul ended up in the city of Corinth, all right? Uh, And in Corinth, Paul settled there. We know that Paul didn't just like show up, preach the gospel for a couple days and then just take off. Uh, But Paul would settle there and he'd spend three months or six months or a year even sometimes uh, making sure that the church was solid on the gospel that had leaders that had been raised up and then he would move on. And so Paul does that in the church in Corinth. And so he raises up this church and then he moves on. But Paul never really moved on in his heart to where he would plan a church in a city and then just say, well, I hope they make the best of it. I'll never see them again. Uh, Rather often, Paul would move on to another city, but he would maintain communication with the churches that he had planted. A lot of what we have in the Bible, letters from Paul, are letters to churches that he has visited, moved on from, and now he's checking in on them, or or he's continuing to teach them, or he is encouraging them, or even sometimes rebuking them uh, for something that's going on. And so we know that Paul had moved on. And then Paul gets this report about the church in Corinth. And see, they, they had walked into the gospel, but they struggled with what was going on in their past. And they had brought a lot of their past up into where they were. And it had caused a lot of strife and a lot of division in the church, right? And so Paul has written a few letters, but then he writes a big letter. This is the letter that we call First Corinthians, right? It wasn't the first one that he wrote. Paul says in First Corinthians, hey, in my previous letter, maybe we should call it like, to the second Corinthians, but it's the first one we have, so we call it first, right? Paul writes and he's like, hey, here's all the things that are going on. Here's some some uh, you know, encouragement and here's what you're doing. And, and this is why it doesn't line up with the gospel. Uh, and here's what you need to do about that. Here's how you can correct this division that's going on. All right? so Paul writes that letter and he's continuing on in his journey. Uh, the, the church in Corinth receives that letter and kind of says, yeah, Nah, we're not gonna do that, right? And so they don't really listen to Paul. So Paul, continuing his journeys, makes his way back to Corinth, right? And, and I have to imagine that visit probably didn't go so well, right? I mean, parents, you probably understand this, right? You've told your kids something that they ought to be doing, they messed up, and you're like, here's how you fix that. And then you leave, right? Hey, you need to clean your room up, Right, and you go away and you notice when you come back by the room, it's not clean, that moment's probably not like the kindest moment. It's not like, well, I kind of told you. No, Paul kind of lays into the church in Corinth. Like, "I've, I've told you what to do, you haven't done it, now I'm upset, right? And so he shares this harsh message with them and then he leaves and he writes them another letter that continues that harsh rebuke. Now that's not 2 Corinthians, it's a letter between First and Second Corinthians where he's like, hey, this is what you need to do. So in response to that harsh visit and that second letter with a rebuke in it, Paul's companion, a guy that we also know named Titus, comes to Paul, Paul has moved on and he's now in a city called Ephesus and Paul is now in Ephesus and Titus shows up and was like, I don't know what you said, but they listened right? And they had begun to turn. They had repented of their sin. They repented of their wrongdoing. They said, we messed up. We need to turn back to the gospel that you, were, you, you gave to us. And so in love, having seen their repentance, Paul writes another letter to them. And that's the letter of 2 Corinthians. What we're getting is Paul following up with that, hey, I've seen what, you're, what you've done to repent and turn Let me continue to encourage you in that. And so 2 Corinthians follow, where Paul is continuing to teach them what it looks like to turn, to repent, and to follow in the gospel. And so I know that's a big chunk of info, but it kind of helps us set the stage. Because if anything, most of us probably understand what it looks like to have fallen back into sin and to need God to encourage us as we turn back towards him in faith. We know what it looks like to fall back into our sinful ways. We know what it looks like to run back to that old life and we need that same encouragement to continue in the gospel. And so Paul, writing as he does to encourage the church to continue in faith and in repentance, gets to chapter five and he is is longing for them to understand the depth of the gospel. And I think one of the best ways that we can really kind of catch the fullness of this passage is to work backwards. Let's start with the end and work back towards the beginning. So if you have your Bibles there with you still open, look at verse 21 and let's start in verse 21 and work our way back to verse 16. Verse 21 is probably the verse that you're most familiar with in this passage. It's probably the one that stood out as we were reading. Verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. This right here, this verse, is the fullness of the gospel condensed down into one single verse. For our sake, your version might read, for us, he made him what? He made him sin for us. God loves us so much. Jesus says it in John three sixteen. for God so loved the world. God cares about us deeply. God longs for us to understand how much he loves us. Not because we're lovable, because most of us aren't, but because he is a God of such great goodness and love that he would choose to love us even as enemies. For our sake, God made him who knew no sin, Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, born on this earth and walked every single day perfectly. In every single moment, he chose the right and good thing to do. In him, there was no sin, no deceit, Nothing worthy of punishment. In us, there is nothing good. The Bible says that even the best we can do is filthy rags. I lay all of my good at the feet of Jesus and he says it is still sinful. Because it is always done with selfish motives. But Jesus was perfect. He had no sin. He had nothing that deserved death. Nothing that deserved punishment. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin, being perfect, to be sin. Oh, what the what the weight of that must have felt like. To have never known sin, and then on the cross for God to, to put on him the weight and the burden of all our sin. What he must have felt, the anguish that pours out of him. We can read the passion narrative and see Jesus cry out in pain and suffering. It's because the weight of all of our sin has been put on him and then the full cup of God's wrath has been poured out as punishment. For the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserved. That's what we had earned because of our sin and yet God poured all of that out on Jesus. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God didn't take our sin out of us and put it on Jesus to give us a blank slate and say, go try again. Because if I had gone and tried again, I would have filled my life up with more and more sin. Yet Jesus says, I will take your sin and in taking your sin, I will fill that hole up, not with more of what you can do, but instead I will fill it with my righteousness. This is called the the imputation of righteousness if you need a, a big word for today. God takes out our sin and puts in its place the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that when he looks at us, He no longer sees the best we we can do, which is still sinful. Instead, he sees what Jesus did for us and his righteousness on us. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. God took our sin and placed it on Jesus. And then he, he killed him as punishment for that. He died as punishment for our sin so that we could have the righteousness that he lived in. And then he defeated it all. He defeated sin and he defeated death and he rose from the grave. Having died, having having taken our punishment so that we can have righteousness and new life. And this is the gospel. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. You and I deserve death. But we received life. We received life. This has to be the constant of our life. A few weeks ago, we heard from Pastor Jonas who shared that the the gospel is the centering point of our life. That's why we constantly repeat it to ourselves. We preach it to ourselves every day because our entire life hinges on what Christ has done for us on on the cross. This is the gospel. And I know, I know as people, most of us who have grown up in church, we hear that week in and week out and we become a little bit callous to it. Our hearts become a little bit hardened to it. It's not that we don't believe it and know it. It's not that we wouldn't intellectually affirm the the greatness of it, but our heart becomes a little bit, yeah, I know that. Let's move on to the application. But church, may we never, ever get tired of hearing and speaking the gospel to ourselves. May may we never move past the awe that should exist in our life because a God who didn't have to chose to save us from a sin that we committed against him. May we never move past the wonder that we have as a new believer, the joy that exists when we see that... man. As an enemy of God, he saved me. That's what Romans 5.10 says, that while we were still enemies, God chose to save us. And if he did that while we were still enemies, how much more is he gonna save us and give us new life? We were enemies to God and he chose to love us and save us. And I hope we never forget that. We never grow tired of hearing that. We never grow callous to what God has done in our lives in the gospel. Because if we grow callous to it, We don't tell people about it. If we go tired of hearing about it, we won't want to share it with somebody who needs to hear it. And that's exactly what we ought to be doing. Look back, go back a verse to verse 20, right? Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. When someone gets saved when they are rescued from imminent danger, when death is at their doorstep and they're snatched away from it, they want to tell the world. They want to share what happened, who rescued them, how did they rescue them? They want everybody they come into contact with to know, look how great that person is that they would have saved me from from death that was coming. And yet sometimes we get a little bit hardened to telling a story that is the greatest story of rescue. You and I have the greatest need and we have the greatest savior. We have the greatest rescuer in our lives. Why aren't we telling people? Paul is saying, listen, when you experience that joy that runs into your life because for our sake, he became sin so that we could give him our sin and we could receive his righteousness. When you've been saved like that, there is a joy in your life that just shouts out to the world. You become an ambassador To the world about the goodness and the rescuing nature of God. That word ambassador is important. I know that today it's kind of wrapped up mostly in, in political language and people out making political deals and that sort of stuff. But in this day, we would have seen an ambassador often as the herald of help in a losing battle. Right, That there, you are, are in a battle and you are hopelessly outnumbered, hopelessly outgunned, and there is no way you're going to win. And then suddenly on the horizon, you see the ambassador of an ally king carrying the banner of an army that is coming to your rescue. They are there to save you. You and I, when we are rescued by Christ, we become ambassadors. Those who carry the banner of Christ and say, hope Is on the way hope is coming those who receive life become ambassadors we are beacons of hope to a dying broken world that needs to know that rescue is available and so we carry the banner of Christ and we ought to carry it with excitement And then then God takes what we have become excited about. Here's what's really cool. That thing that we ought to love to share with the world around us and should never be able to stop talking about because we've been rescued and we want everyone else to be rescued as well. And he takes that thing that gives us the most joy and he makes it our purpose in life. He makes our life about sharing the good news of being rescued by a good God. Look at verse 18 and 19. Everything uh, everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. The very thing we ought never to grow tired of doing, God makes our purpose and mission in this life. When he says we've been given the ministry of reconciliation, we hear that word reconciliation. We have to understand that reconciliation means being made in right relationship with God. That we are are not just rescued from our sin and said, go, you know, go away now. We are made in right relationship with God. The Bible uses language like children, right? We are, are his family now. We are brought into a relationship with Christ. That means you and I live in close connection to God. We haven't just been rescued by him. We've been adopted into his family. We belong to him now. We live as his children. And so we become ambassadors sharing the good news of rescue into his family. But we also join the ranks of those who become guides into what it looks like to join him and be in right relationship with him. This is God's desire that none should perish, right? 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says that. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but rather all to come to repentance. God's desire is that not just we be saved, but that all would be saved. And so he gives to us that ministry. And he uses us and our story of rescue to rescue other people. He wants everyone to know and follow him. Right. Remember what the kids learned this week at VBS. Following Jesus changes everything. It It takes people who were dead and brings them to life. People without hope and gives them joy. And this is a privilege. This is not, and we have to stop thinking of it this way. This is not a task. This is not a responsibility. This is not a job. This is a privilege that God gives to us, and he says, I will use you to bring others to the same rescue you've experienced. If it becomes some box to check, we will begrudge doing it. We won't want to share it. How many parents, especially in the cell phone age, have a kid and then walk out in the world and see people and go, I guess I'll show you my new kid. All right. Hey, here you go. All right. Here's, here's 17 pictures of my kid eating smushed up peas last night. All right. I mean, I guess that's what you want to see, right? No, we love it. We become annoying about it, right? People see us coming and they turn and go the other direction because they know all we're going to do is tell them about that new life that's in ours. And why aren't we that way with the gospel? There is new life that exists inside of us because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. And we go, ah, I don't know if I can speak really good. I mean, imagine saying that about showing somebody a picture of your kid. I'd show them a picture of my kid, but I'm not sure if I got the right words. No. God has rescued us. He has saved us. And how much should we want to say, come, meet the one who saved me. Meet the one who gave me new life. God gives to us the joy of the ministry of reconciliation. But this is a call to change, not just in words, not just in language, but a call to change in our entire lives. We are called to live in the gospel. From now on then, we, don't, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective, even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective. Yet now we know him no longer in this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see, the new has come. We cannot invite people into the light when we continue to live in the darkness. Following Jesus changes our words. No, that wasn't it. Following Jesus changes our eternal destination. No, that, that wasn't it. Following Jesus changes everything. Changes everything. Who we are, our stance before God, and the way that we live in this world, in the here and now. That old life, it is dead, it is gone. It has to stay gone. It has to stay in the past. Paul tells the church in Corinth, in Christ, they are something completely different than what they were. Before Christ, Paul was a murderer who drugged people from their homes, who threw men, women, and children in chains in the hopes that they would die for this false religion that they believed in who took joy and pleasure in holding people's jackets while they stoned people to death. And then he met Jesus, and everything changed. And the entirety of his life was devoted to making that gospel that he once persecuted the message of his whole life. He was willing to die the death that he put others to so that people would know the gospel. We know We know that we are called to something new and different. But we also know that we have a tendency when life gets hard to run back to what is easy and comfortable, and that's our sin. Our sin is easy. It's comfortable. We know it. And so we often run back to it instead of walking down the road that God has called us to walk. This is why Jesus told his disciples in chapter 6, what? Seek first his kingdom. And his righteousness. That word seek isn't a passive thing. It doesn't mean just kind of stand still and look around. It doesn't mean just observe and hope it passes by. It's a chasing after. Seeking is a knowing what you're looking for and running to find it. Seek first his kingdom. If Jesus gives us his righteousness, then we ought to devote our life to living in that righteousness and seeking out what it means for us day after day longing to live in that righteousness, studying what that righteousness is daily, how in the world will we convince other people of the goodness of a life of following Jesus when we won't do it ourselves? We have to live in the light if we're going to call people out of the darkness. So let's start at the beginning and move towards the end now. As believers, we are called to be not what we once were. God has made us a new creation in Christ and and we are called to live as those new creations. And as that new creation, we are given a ministry and a purpose in life, the ministry of reconciliation, of showing people how we've been made right in our relationship with God and how they too can walk away from their sin and live in right relationship with God. We are, are walking that path and we are guiding others along that path as well. We become ambassadors of a greater kingdom of a greater life that he has called us to live. We are living in the light of Christ and we are calling people out of the darkness of their sin. And we do this, not begrudgingly, not because we're told to, but because we have been rescued from our own sin. We have been saved from death that we deserved and given life that we don't. We were enemies and now we're sons and daughters of Christ. By faith, God has given us his righteousness and he has called us to live as those new creations. So what are we going to do with that? Where are you at in all of that today? I I know that all of us, whenever we hear the word, the word points towards where we are struggling. It points out our uh, difficulties. And so what has brought out itself to you today Maybe when we spoke earlier about having a a, a waning sense of joy and excitement about the gospel, he would say, I've been there. I might be there right now. I knew that joy as a new believer, but I've just kind of walked into the normalcy of life and I've struggled to live in excitement and joy for what God has done in me. My prayer is that you would ask God to soften your heart and bring that excitement back. Bring that joy of knowing that he has saved you back into your heart, that that joy of knowing the truth of the gospel again. Do you struggle to tell other people about Jesus and what he has done for you? Do excuses always come to your mind and to your heart when the opportunity arises? Pray that you would ask God to help you see the joy and the privilege that it is to make him known to a world that needs to hear about him. You would be excited about being an ambassador and a minister of reconciliation. Maybe there's some part of that old life that you struggle to hold on to or struggle to let go of. God, you can have every single part of me, but this one thing, this one thing, that's mine. and, And you can't have it because I'm worried about who I would be if you took it from me. I'm worried about what my life would look like if I can't have that thing. And we're not letting go and letting God work in our lives. I pray that you would ask God to help you remember the righteousness that he's given to you and the strength of that righteousness in you through the Holy Spirit. Or maybe you would say, today is the first time I've heard the gospel and it has pierced my heart. That I know that I've been living in my sin, but I hear that message of a God who loves me And who wants to rescue me from my sin? And you would say, today, I need to believe in the gospel. I pray that you would repent of that sin and turn towards Christ and believe. That you would look towards him and his salvation offered through Christ on the cross. And you would trust that his substitution was good enough to pay your sin. And you would believe in him today. Wherever God is calling you to look towards him, I pray that you would do that with willingness and with boldness. As the band comes up to lead us in a song of invitation, will you pray with me this morning? God, you are so good. You are so good to us. You bring to us life when we were owed nothing and had earned nothing but death. You give us grace when we deserved punishment. Mercy when we deserve death. God, thank you. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that following him changes everything about our lives. Not just our words, not just our position, but God, everything. God, I pray that as we walk into this moment of response God, that whatever you are calling us to do, that we would be bold enough to do it. God, I pray that you would fill us with joy and awe and wonder at the gospel. That we would know your kingdom and your grace in a way that is refreshing and joy-filling to our hearts. God, that it would create in us just this outpouring of of excitement over what you've done. God, that we would be filled with the joy that would take us out into the world to tell other people, look at the God who rescued me. That would be the cry of our heart. And for the one in here who doesn't know that saving grace, God, that they haven't committed their hearts to you and given their lives to you to change. God, I pray that today would be that day and they would trust in you, they would believe the gospel that you are here to rescue them. You've given Jesus to save them, and that through His death, burial, and resurrection, that they can have new life if they just believe. We pray that that would be their heart today. And we thank you so much for your Son Jesus. It's in His name that we pray.